The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse coming at you on an American holiday, Memorial Day, which means that a lot of us in the U.S. are off. Yay! We've been recording a ton this month. I can't wait to share that work with you. And we'll be back next week with an all new episode. But we're taking this week to dip into the archives. We're going all the way back to my second episode, which was with Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love. I was really new at podcasting, and you'll hear that. I was also really nervous to talk to Liz, and you'll hear that too. She is just an author I really respect and admire. But this episode, it was everything to me. Here I was making this show about the future of work, and she blew a hole through my assumption that we need careers at all. Why have a career, she kind of asked. Why not just have a job and do the thing you love? You'll hear a couple of prompts to give us feedback. This is an older episode, but we'd still really love to hear from you. Hope you enjoy it and see you next week. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate how we're changing the nature of work and how that work is changing us. For those of us who went to college, there's this assumption that our profession is more than just a way to pay the bills. It's the place where we find our sense of purpose. You've got to find what you love, and that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. That's Steve Jobs at his commencement address at Stanford in 2005. But it's possible that he is steering us in the wrong direction. Maybe that's asking too much of a career. Maybe your job should just be your job. This idea is having a moment. Journalists have lately been writing about burnout, about the idea that we have to like our jobs at all, and a condition called workism. Later in this episode, reporter Caroline Fairchild will dig into this. But first, I bring you a conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert, who inspired millions to chase their passions. Sixteen years ago, she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. It was a book that became a bestseller and then a phenomenon. It sold six million copies. And just like that, Liz not only fueled other people's passions, but she turned her own passion, writing, into a lucrative career. And so you'd think that Liz would embrace Steve Jobs' advice. In fact, you'd be wrong. In our conversation, she hammered the idea that nothing is owed to us. You are never guaranteed money or fame, especially in a creative pursuit. And learning this allows you truly to do the things you love. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert. So Liz, tell me about careers. Okay. I think there are sort of four different entities that often get blended together in people's minds and that I think part of the problem where people get stuck or even traumatized on the career path is that they mix all these things up. So it's hobby, job, career, vocation. And and they're all different, right? So a hobby is something that you do because it's fun and you like it and you don't need anything back from it. You just do it because it's 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 delightful. It fills your days. It fills your nights. It doesn't need to be your career, right? right? It can just be a hobby. Or a job is a thing you have because everyone has to have one. Right. And it doesn't need to – a job doesn't need to fulfill 
your emotional life because you can have a job and then you can have your life outside of your job. So you have your job that you go to to pay the bills and then you have your life outside of your job where you do your hobbies and your pursuits and your family. And it might not be the most interesting thing in your life, but whatever, you got to pay the bills. A career is something that you should be passionate about. So a career is a job that you deeply care about. That's the difference between a career and a job. And if you're in a, if you think you're in a career, but you hate it and you're bored and it's killing you, quit it and just go get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Or change it and get a career in something that you're passionate about. It's okay to just have a job. Not everybody needs to have a capital C career because you can have a whole life outside of that. And then the other one is vocation, which is like a sacred calling of something that is very holy to you, that is the center of your life, that, you know, can never be taken away from you no matter what. I love that framework for thinking about what you do and how you do. Yeah. How did you learn that? I learned it because I didn't set out to have a career. I set out to have a vocation. And the thing that's really liberating about setting out to have a creative vocation is that it's not really dependent on anybody else. And what I mean by that is the seven years that I collected rejection letters, sending my writing out into the world, were not destroying me. Because, first of all, I had a job. <laughs> okay, well, right? tell us about that. So, so I was a bartender. So, so now I was a waitress. we're in your 20s, right? Yeah. I was a bartender. I was a waitress. I was an au pair. I, I worked on a ran- I had lots of jobs. And I had a very inexpensive quality of life. That's always been important to me. So that I'm not so dependent on... So that I can just have a job and, and I can then, in my other hours, do what's passionate to me. Um, so I loved my vocation before you ever heard of me. I loved my vocation when I was getting nothing but rejection letters. I, I loved my vocation when I got really famous for Eat, Pray, Love. I loved my vocation when the book after it sold one one-thousandth of the number of copies of Eat, Pray, Love. I, my vocation is mine. And my career may come and go. So my career as a writer is very different from my vocation as a writer. My career is completely dependent on you. You who buy my books, you who follow me in social media. But you can take my career away. You can't take my vocation away. I will always be a writer, whether you're going to pay me for it or like me for it or not. I can just go get a job. (laughs) So that's how I did it. That's how I did it. Look, so many of the people who love your work and follow you also are writers or songwriters or tap into a creative source in another way. Mm-hmm. But they're working day jobs and they're yes. doing it on top of their day jobs. Yes. And it looks to me, looking backward, like you figured out how to fuse the two. Do you have advice for someone who wants to try to do that? You have to remember that, I mean, this, I'm just going to say it. You have to remember that nothing is owed to you. Nothing is owed to you. And that may sound lonely and like a banishment and like some sort of an exile and harsh, but it's actually where the seat of all liberation is. Mm. Um, There's tremendous anxiety to be had in any creative field because it is so unpredictable. And, And then the landscape is changing. You know, like the jobs that I had starting off as a writer 20 years ago don't exist anymore. Yes. Um, Other jobs do. Uh, other things do. Podcasting didn't exist. Now we've got this. But it used to be that, you know, you could make a really good living as a as a magazine writer. Um, a lot of people made very good livings as magazine writer. Now 11 people make very good livings as magazine writers. You know, um, that entire landscape has changed. But if you're going to be a creative person, and this is my problem with the professionalization of creativity, is that the implied professionalization of creativity, if you go get a master's degree in the fine arts, for instance, the danger is that you start to think that you have 
like a certification now mm-hmm. and that you should therefore be able to get a job in that field doing the thing that you love as if you had gone to ACNR school, as if you'd gone to a technical college and learned air conditioning and refrigeration and you got a trade. Right. You know, um, creativity is not a trade. It never has been. It's never been a safe bet. It, you must remember that. And nobody owes you anything. <laughs> you know, your obligation is to the creative process that you love. It's on you. It's on you. And it's and it's flighty. It's unpredictable. People who are less talented than you will do better than you do. Um, That's, you know, that is so hard to learn. It is true. It is capricious. There mm-hmm. is no ground under your feet in this. And I think where people start getting depressed and angry is the expectation that there should be. And what I would ask you to do is just look back through all of history and just see that there never has been. There never has been. And, and, and so you have to find another reason to do this. And then go out and hustle. What was that first year like after you wrote Eat, Pray, Love? Okay, so I used to have, this shows how much my life has changed. I used to have my email address and phone number on my website, like like we all did <laughs> 15 years ago, because I was always trying to get work, right? So, you know, I, I started getting emails from people. And, and I was initially like, oh, wow, somebody read my book. Um, that's so great. What I noticed that I thought was very strange was that people were writing me emails. I can't tell you how many emails I got that started with saying, I'm halfway through your book and I just have to stop and send you an email and say thank you. I'm two chapters into this and I need to just stop and say you've written something that's incredibly important to me. That to me remains very strange. Well, talk to me about that. Do you have a male audience that you know of or that you connect with? I mean, I used to. My publishers keep trying to bust that down and they keep trying to figure out how to market my books to men. And and I, my feeling is, why don't you let people choose what they want to read? And I also feel like there's a teeny, tiny, tiny little thing, even when it's well-intentioned, even when um, friends of mine will get angry that men won't read my novels and they'll be like, come on, you guys, like you're missing out. This is This is a real writer. You know, this is a real novelist. I think it's really interesting that there's a sort of even within those people, there's an inbred prejudice that says, if men aren't following your work, it's not really maybe legitimate. So let's go back to 2006. So your, your book published two days after Valentine's Day of 2006. A month in, you start really understanding that it has become a phenomenon, maybe larger than you, that it is going to reward you in different ways than you thought. But I imagine maybe it might take some things away from you that you hadn't expected. And I'm curious, like, was there a day that you sat down to write again? And when you lifted up that pen, did you freak out? Yeah, I did. I mean, here was the good news. The good news was that I had already written three books before Eat, Pray, Love. If that had been my first book, I cannot imagine how I would have figured out how to get over that speed bump, you know. Um, but but the good news is that I'd, I'd written three books, so I knew how to write a book. And I knew that it was okay to write a book that 3,000 people read. Because that's what happened with my first book, Pilgrims. So it's a tremendous thing to write a book, period. But I, the, the first draft of the book that I wrote after Eat, Pray, Love, um, which is committed, it was a disaster. And I didn't know it. I finished the book and I went, I went to Kinko's and I got the first printed copy of it and I sat down and read it and I started crying because I was like, this is all wrong and I don't know why. I just didn't get it. There's nothing, uh, this voice is so forced and so inauthentic. And I ended up writing to my publisher and saying, I'm not even going to show it to you. 
you're not getting it unless you come to my house and steal it from under my bed. No one will ever read this. What was the feeling layer under that? Did you feel like a failure at that point or were you I did. I did. I felt like a failure and I felt like I'd lost my – I just didn't I, – I didn't know what had gone wrong. I just knew that I burned the cake and I didn't know what I had done wrong in the recipe. And That's an awful feeling. It's terrible. And what I did was walk away and truly start a garden. And I spent the year outside with my hands in the dirt. I had, I just, it was such a smart thing for me to do because it was very literally grounding. It was about a year and change later that I was raking up the leaves and putting the garden to bed when suddenly the new first line to Committed came to my head. And I realized in that moment what had gone wrong. And what had gone wrong is that I had tried to write a book for six million readers. And how do you do that? And instead, what I did was I sat down and I wrote Committed as a letter to my 10 closest female friends, who I do know um, and who I'm intimate with. So I circled the intimacy back around myself and I wrote it to these women who I knew rather than writing to millions of strangers and trying to please them. I don't know how to please millions of strangers. I know how to talk to my 10 best friends. Well, it's so that's such an interesting that you say, because I've spent 15 years writing about technology, and in particular, the people who are creating the technology. Mm -hmm. And one of the lessons that comes up over and over and over again for anybody trying to make anything is stop trying to make something that you don't understand for everybody Yeah, and figure out how to make 10 people love you. Yeah. It's almost like that same idea as I won't be a legitimate writer till men follow me. It's like, oh, I won't be. These 11 people don't matter. I need a thousand. I need 10,000. No, those 11 people are, are who's giving you their energy and their attention. Serve them. So what have you learned over the course of your life about yourself, about how to harness and make peace with and make the best of that emotion rather than letting it make okay, the best of harness, you? I haven't learned. <laughs> you just gave me a look right there. Oh, God. Harness, <laughs> I don't even try. Um, I've, I've learned to not even try to harness that because I'll lose, you know. I know that some of the most pain that I've ever been in my life is when I was trying to harness myself in order to conform. We're going to take a break for a message from our sponsors. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, 
Listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. All right, back to my conversation with Liz Gilbert. It's been a hard year for Liz. Her partner, Rhea Elias, died just more than a year ago. It can be so hard to muster the energy to create when you're grieving. But if your job is to be a writer, well, then you have to write. So I wanted to hear more about how she actually got it done. So let's talk nuts and bolts of writing for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. When do you do it? How do you structure your day? I do it first thing in the morning because that's when my brain is the best. But I would say unto you, anybody out there who is writing, is that if you are a grown-ass adult, and I'm assuming that you are if you're listening to this, you already know when your best hour of the day is. You know. And it's going to be different for every person because all of us have different circadian rhythms and different biologies and different psychologies and different work schedules and different family needs. But if you're lucky, you get like a like one hour of the day where actually you kind of feel okay, <laughs> where you kind of feel like you're awake and your energy is good and, and you're bright. You've got your brightest mind, your shiniest mind. My question to you is who or what is currently getting that hour? Who or what is currently getting that hour of the day? Claim it for you. That's yours. That's yours. That's yours for your work, for the thing that you're creating, for the thing that you're passionate about. You take that hour and you put a border around it and you say that this one belongs to you. And then the 23 other hours of the day, give your second best to everybody else, right? Keep your best for yourself. So for me, my best self is between 6 and 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. That's when – and other people are groaning because they don't even wake up. I have a, I have a friend who's um, a Oscar-winning screenwriter um, who can only write between 2 and 3 a.m., you know, um, just doesn't you. even wake up till 7 o'clock at night, like it keeps bartender's hours. That's how his mind functions. You know, my mind happens to be that I wake up really sharp. Okay, so place, do you drink any special potion? Do you have a cat who sits to your left? Look, I've written everywhere. As you're asking this, I feel there's like a there's a mystical, magical, juju-y thing that we want where we're like, if I could, you know, get the right desk and the right people ask me like what kind of pens and pencils, what font do you use? Right. And I'm like, you guys, it's not that. It's we're, we're all not just looking that. for the excuse why we can't it's do it. It's not Liz. that. And and Roxanne Gay tweeted something the other day where I was like, Preach, where she just said, y'all keep asking me a million times for all these secrets and tips and, and the way that you do it. And I'm here to tell you, it is really only the one thing, which is sit down, clear the calendar, make time, and don't stand up until you've written for a certain number of either words or minutes a day. So what's the last <clears throat> thing you wrote? The last thing I wrote was, um, it's actually about Rhea. I mean, I've been, I've been writing about her um, and trying to figure out what to make from that pain and from that story, that glorious, horrible story. Um, in a weird way, if I can bring in a spiritual bent with her cooperation, you know, it's an ongoing conversation with her from beyond the grave of, you know, how do you want me to do this? How, how are we going to do this? That's the question I keep <laughs> saying to her. How are we going to do this, Rhea? How are we going to tell this? What, what are we going to make this into? And I don't quite know the answer to that yet, but, but that's what it, where my thoughts have been. Do you find that you sit down with people and they immediately jump to tell you about their losses? I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't mind, you know. Um, I, my I feel like my vocation has changed. Um, I used to think that my vocation was to be a writer, and to a certain extent it is. But now I feel like my real vocation is to be 
love in the room, whatever room I happen to be in. So if somebody comes to me to tell me about their loss, whether it's their divorce or the death of a loved one, um, then it's so clear what my job is in that moment. You know, um, that my vocation, my job, my my career in that moment <laughs> <laughs> is to um, receive that. Yeah. Like just let them say whatever they need to say and um, not try to fix it, um, but just to just to be love in the room. That was Elizabeth Gilbert. Liz has a new book coming out in June, City of Girls. Stay tuned after the credits to hear more about it. If you have a daily creative practice, I want to know about it. Send us a voice memo at hellomondayatlinkedin.com and I'll include you in an upcoming story. I learned a lot from our conversation with Liz, specifically this idea that your job may not be your career and your vocation might be something else altogether. And maybe we shouldn't be trying so hard to have rich, fulfilling careers that we love and just get a job. It's not just Liz who's talking about this. Journalists have recently been writing about it in BuzzFeed and The Atlantic and The New York Times. So I asked our reporter, Caroline, to look into it. Hi, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. Erin Griffith just wrote about this in The New York Times, and her article is called, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? I called her up to learn more. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, where we're in these situations. Some of us might genuinely like a lot of aspects of our jobs, but not all of it. But we were promised, or we kind of expected to be in these fulfilling jobs that we went to school with and said we have crippling debt and said we're being overworked and underpaid and maybe our jobs are precarious. All of those kind of expectations that are not being met is uh, leading a lot of people to kind of just decide to delude themselves a little bit into believing that this is what they wanted and, uh, you know, tweeting about it and sharing about it and bragging about it and making their job a piece of their identity um, and really, you know, taking pride in that, even if deep down they know it's not real. In other words, just to deal with the reality of working, some people may actually need to convince themselves that they just love what they do. But how did we get here in the first place? Where did we get that idea that work is supposed to fulfill us? There is a theory that comes from Martin Luther that jobs should be callings. That's Derek Thompson. He's a writer for The Atlantic and a self-professed workaholic. Recently, Derek wrote about something called workism. Workism, I would define as the relatively modern idea that all of the things that we traditionally looked to religions to find in life, meaning and community and transcendence and self-actualization, a certain sliver of the modern economy now looks to work to provide all those things. And I worry that at a time when we're really fetishizing the idea of work for meaning, work for passion, find everything that makes you happy in your nine-to-five job, that we're essentially asking for better bread than can be made of wheat. Our jobs just aren't designed to do that. I, at the same time, believe that we should seek meaning and we should seek passion, we should seek transcendence from our lives. The big question is, all right, then from where? Now, that's a philosophical question. And I'm not a philosophy expert, but I, I've read enough to know that there's a diversity of answers. But it's interesting to me that in all of that literature, Practically nobody has said that the place that we should seek meaning from is our jobs. Derek says all of this has become intensified because of everything we put online about ourselves. I think that a life lived digitally is a world in which we are all thrust into a tournament of status. 
it's just impossible to forget about status when you're online, especially on social media networks. And I think that if your sense of self-worth is so attuned to a question of status that you make status mongering your religion, you put it on a pedestal. So one of the questions that I've been wrestling with personally for this episode is, I'm sure you've heard this. This is what I grew up hearing from my parents and from everyone I knew, which is find something that you love to do. Find something that you wake up in the morning and just can't wait to do. Find a job that gives you purpose. Is that bad career advice now? Yes, I think it is bad career advice. Even great work sucks sometimes. Everyone even if they're in a job that they might describe as their dream job, wakes up some mornings thinking, I can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe I have to go into work. I, I can't believe I have to go to this meeting, write this paper. Like, everyone feels this. And so to pretend by way of advice that we should never feel those feelings, that work should never feel like work, that's a lie. And at the end of your piece, you admit that you have the same tendencies that you describe of this generation and of this kind of new philosophy of work. How are you working on that? <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I had I wrote this article and then achieved a state of nirvana. And now I can report back to you mere mortals from the state of nirvana that I've discovered about how exactly to balance work and life. The balancing of work and life is probably the project of living. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to figure it out, and I don't think anyone is ever going to perfectly figure it out. But I'll tell you this. What I've done now is be more mindful about what moments make me happy. That was Derek Thompson and Aaron Griffith. Next week, I'm talking to Tim Brown. He's a designer who runs the company IDEO. You know, so much is going to change in the future. But if you're a person who can come up with ideas, you know, an original thinker, I suspect you'll be okay. So I want Tim to deconstruct where ideas come from. How and where do you come up with your new ideas? We want to hear from you for the next episode. So send us a voice memo, the more specific, the better, about how you get your best ideas at hellomonday at linkedin.com. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim and Wes Wingo with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show is mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Riondo is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Lucas Sloan is our creative inspiration in Mississippi. Music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel, and thanks for listening. I guess I would say this. This is a line that's in my new book. So I've got this book coming out. It's a novel. It's about showgirls in New York City in the 1940s. It's called City of Girls, to be published by Riverhead. It's about promiscuous women. I wanted for years to write a novel about women who have had a lot of sex in their lives, and their lives are not destroyed by it. And this is the line that's in the book. You can be a good person without being a good girl. Yes. You know, I'm, I've not been a good girl in my life, but I'm a very good person. <laughs> I have my own deep kind of integrity. I'm a good friend. I'm a I'm I'm devoted to the people who I love. There's loyalties and I'm a really passionate person whose whose heart's desire changes over time and that's okay.